You're listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa. I don't know who's to blame. Zimbabwe, Mabwe, we love boasting, reveling in what you are and what we could become. Before I get into this episode, I just want to say, in no way do we condone nor minimize the very dire human rights food insecurity, and freedom of speech violations going on in Zimbabwe. Today. Right now. And it's with this very present and heartfelt sensitivity that we wanted to shine some light on the ancestral memories and bittersweet flavors of home which are carried on in the diaspora by present-day Zimbabweans. This, hopefully, to offer some additional hope in these desperate times and toward our belief in a future of African prosperity for all. Absolutely. That is where we come from. That was nutritionist dietitian, Cordialis Chipo Masora Kasalo, a Zimbabwean based in the U.S. Cordialis considers the luxury in health and wellness that she's been able to provide for her own children when reflecting on the state of her homeland and her ancestral continuum. I am from Harare, Zimbabwe. Uh, my family is in Harare. Um, and Growing up, every Zimbabwean girl, most Zimbabwean people will tell you that they have a traditional home or roots, as we like to nickname it. And I am from Chihota. That is my ancestral home. I'm envisioning my kids who are American born and American raised and basically raised in a bicultural home, one American, the other African with myself and my husband and trying to merge those two. I know that wisdom that I was brought up and raised. And to my kids sometimes, that is the other. That is the other that they don't understand and sometimes cannot relate to. And so trying to bring that home, you know, I'm introducing those ancient grains. I I do make a millet, sorghum, or even teff pancake for them so that they can enjoy both both worlds, um, but having to be innovative in some way so that they too can experience the health that I know is part of their lineage. Cordialis is one of the more than three million Zimbabweans living outside of Zimbabwe and in the diaspora. And that's since the turn of the millennium. Many of those actually fled the country due to recurring political, economic, and food insecurity crises. While nobody wants to leave home for perceived better options, what's worse is the fear of never returning. What then? How do we regenerate a sense of cultural connection and ancestral reverence for the land, language, and people when faced with the possibility of not going home again? You were thriving in delusions of grandeur, but I placed you on that pedestal, so I don't know who's to blame. Zimbabwe, Mabwe, we love boasting, reveling in what you are and what we could become. Well, I think it comes from our experiences. My experience was one in which I was educated that food is good for you and food is nourishing and will strengthen your health system. But yet, on the other hand, I saw how people on the African continent were suffering um, chronic diseases or non-communicable diseases related to changes in diets and lifestyle. Of course, other social injustices came into play over there. Mm. And as I was listening to the messages, there were no messages that were promoting healthy African food. All the messages that said anything to do with health 
were coming from outside of the continent. And that made me feel like I wasn't valid, that mm. the food that I ate, the mawuyus or the sorghums and the millets and the round nuts that I grew up eating could not be healthy. Aha, uh-huh. yes, of course it's through the food, the actual food. The memories of food and the continuity of evolution in food carried along and within the diaspora. And Cordialis found the best route for herself to both bring Zimbabwe along and to find her way back home. You know, when I think of my ancestral home, to me, that was where I got my grounding in food. Because that is the place where I learned about those traditional grains, the sorghums and the millets, and how to grow them, how to harvest them, and to prepare them so that you could make them for a meal. From the age of seven, I was taught how to get those grains and put them in a pestle and mortar and transform that grain into a seed that we'll have as part of our meal. So it holds a very special place for me as a dietitian because it's so important to who I am as an individual and even more so as a dietitian, because that is the food of my people and my ancestors. I knew an alternative narrative because I had grandparents that lived well into their 90s and never had to take any kind of medications to manage diabetes, hypertension. I mean, the most my grandfather took was probably something for minor aches and pains for his body. But that was it. And he credited that to what he ate. And as a dietitian who was trained to look at food as medicine, I knew that there was a missing link. So many people were rushing to look for Western solutions, Western foods to heal their um, new chronic um, health conditions, but forgetting that there was so much goodness in the foods that we eat. So I wanted to change that narrative. I wanted, number one, for people who look like me, who sound like me and talk like me, to understand that our food fits in what healthy food looks like. Mm. I wanted them to know that. I wanted to help change the narrative globally to put African food on the map of healthy foods and what those look like. So I just started talking from that perspective of somebody trained in nutrition and dietetics to give that alternative narrative to what health looks like. I think we need new voices. We need new visions and stories of what healthy food looks like. And I'm helping shape that dialogue. So, okay, I, I want to also just talk to you about what is the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist? Is there a difference? That's an excellent question, and thank you for asking it. Um, and people tend to confuse the difference between a dietitian and a nutritionist. So a dietitian is an individual that has a minimum of a four-year degree in nutrition or a nutrition-related field. In addition to that, in many countries, a dietitian has to take a supervised practice or an internship of some sort. Similar to how physicians go through um, residency, a dietitian would have to take an internship ranging from about 900 to 1,200 hours, depending on the country that you're in. And then at the end of it all, you have to sit for a credentialing exam. So dietitians have credentials and the education related to being a dietitian. A nutritionist, um, is, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist in many countries. There is no backing in, the, in terms of the education. 
when is this intervention of a registered dietitian nutritionist the best time for me? You know, dietitian nutritionists work in a wide variety of settings. And so it just depends on the individual per person. One thing to note is that any time a person eats is a possibility that you might interact with a dietitian nutritionist. Um, so the first thing is we are there during pregnancy and lactation, helping you um, have the best outcomes with during your pregnancy, as well as helping you with baby. If baby can't latch on and you're having a hard time feeding or you're not transitioning to solid foods, you know, dietitians are there. They're throughout the life cycle at each point helping to guide you. But when it comes to chronic diseases, I think within the African context, many of us seek health when there are symptoms of something having gone bad. But um, we are there to help you, guide you. So let's say you have high blood pressure. What should your diet and lifestyle look like? We are there to guide you through that process, not just in diabetes and um, hypertension, but through any disease cycle, because nutrition has a very strong component in terms of managing disease. In fact, when we talk about non-communicable disease, 80% of those diseases have a nutritional component to it. So anytime you are diagnosed with a healthcare condition, a dietitian can possibly see you. But then we're also there for health promotion. I'm a firm believer in prevention. How do we prevent you from getting to that point where you are now diabetic or you are now hypertensive? What are the things that we can control and make strides on so we can prevent the progression of illness? Does that figure in in an ancestral lineage way for you also in terms of you're carrying this wisdom inside your body and your experience and then you take on the science and then you have to take it home, wherever home is, and apply it again? I focus on disease prevention and management through diet. I have seen the power of food and how food can reverse health conditions. And I've worked with people to help them get off of medications and reverse symptoms of diabetes and even high blood pressure through simply changing what they eat and how they eat. And so my virtual programs include me coaching and counseling and helping people change their behaviors so that they can eliminate the things that are making them sick and embrace life and live life to the fullest without any of those health conditions. So I work individually with people and I also have group coaching because I believe in that community support. You need to have people that are going through the same thing that you're going through and talking to you about those particular items. So it, it starts with the individual level, but also having a deep understanding of who we are. I, I, I like to look at the history of food and how food is shared and how food is more than nutrition. I think the social aspect of food is something that we're rapidly losing in today's world full of fad diets and Western-inspired ingredients. Again, with deep respect to the horrors of human rights violations and the dire situation surrounding current food insecurity in Zimbabwe, Cordialis and I expanded our chat about her business, The African Pot Nutrition. We chatted about a growing trend which exists now within the diaspora and is founded upon the celebration of Zimbabwean ancestral food ingredients and the land. 
both fostering hope toward returning home. Yeah. And that 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 is the basis of it all. That is where we come from. The the one thing that brings us together, you know, we always say, "Come on over, let's have a cup of tea. Come on over, let's talk about it over a meal." Because it is uniting and it is what brings us together as people. And I think that regardless of where you go in the world, it's important to ground yourself because it is in that grounding that you find yourself and you remember and celebrate yourself. So off we went in search of the celebration. And lucky us, we happened upon two classic cradle to grave favorites around the world, ice cream and wine. Zimbabwe style. We did not have wine, not growing up. Beer, yeah, you know, I'll be the one of those people that would admit to whenever they sent me back to the kitchen with um, empty glasses or empty cups, I was the one trying to take the last drop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but wine, wine was not something that we saw off. Regularly, I mean, we knew it existed, but it wasn't something that was regularly served around our family or anywhere that we were. But and certainly not in our ancestral home. Umtumbadi was probably the closest that we got to. I think the first time I had a glass of wine, I was probably my college years at a party, a friend's party. Well, as they say, that was back in the day. But today, corks are popping in Zim, thanks to one notable migrant. So my name is Tinashe, T-I-N-A-S-H-E, which is a Shona word to mean uh, we have God. So Tina means we have, She, Shona it's God, so we have God. Uh, my surname is Nyamudoka. So I think people struggle with the D-O-K-A. So it's N-Y-A-M-U-K-A. Family lineages. Huh, lineage. Lineage, lineage, lineage. My grandfather. I'll only see pictures of my great-grandfather. So, yeah, that's about it. And it's probably one of the things which worries me quite a lot. Because going fast forward to my question is probably stuff I'm more passionate about nowadays, try to document stuff, because I always feel our grandfathers or our great-grandfathers didn't document quite a lot for us to really trace the lineage. So, so Tanache is a winemaker and owner at Kamusha Wines. Oh, and he's also head of communications at the new Zimbabwe Sommelier Association. Big Mama say what? Well, it's been, it's been a long time coming, I think, uh, it's just that there hasn't been, before everyone was just too busy, I think. Uh, there hasn't been anyone sticking out their heads and like really saying, let's get this started and, you know, we need this. So we formalized it and now we, yeah, we're looking to take it to a bigger level now. They always say, with business, you got to start with a problem that needs solving. And you know you've done a good job when both the problem and the customer demands grow over time. Something tells me by now, Tanache has got it more than figured out. I know it's, 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 you know, you, you kind of fall into this stuff. Like I, I moved to Cape Town in 2008. Uh, 
obviously that time in Zimbabwe things were like really messy politically, economically. I remember I was staying with Congolese guys and that guys they were working in a supermarket as well, a spa, an observatory, working in the bakery. It's like guys I want to go and apply for a place to work in the thing. It's like, dude, I don't think you ever because all the managers are white. For sure all the managers are white. It's another reality I had to come across as well, because in Zim, you know, you talk of racism and everything, but it's not something we directly felt, we hear about it, but I'd never encountered where I want to go work and someone would tell me you can't work because you know, you're not white, but I have qualifications. So it's those realities which started to come through. And interesting, they told me I couldn't, I had the qualifications, but I couldn't get the job. Yep, there was racism, language barriers, documentation issues, housing issues, xenophobia issues. But something, or maybe someone, just kept pushing Tanache forward. So I got my thinking and deep thoughts, you know. I've always had that deep down in me being entrepreneurial or being a purposeful guy. Like, I always felt like I have a purpose somewhere, but never located it. Long story short, Tanache found both his purpose and passion in less than 10 years. Helped along, of course, with subtle whispers from his grandfather. He went from waitering in some of the top restaurants in South Africa to becoming a top sommelier at the world-famous Test Kitchen and then to becoming a winemaker and creating his own brand of wine at Kamusha Wines. Back to Zimbabwe. Back to Zimbabwe, then I start thinking about it. I was like, okay, I might as well call my wine where it's taking me. So Kamusha means your home, your roots, uh, your origins. The connection to his lineage, sense of history, and the land further planted that sense of purpose that Tanache had been looking for. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it might be sticking to wine, but I feel like I was telling you about purpose. It's, it's I think, to, to, to drive uh, a purpose or a story, you need a vehicle to do that. And I'm fortunate wine is that, that voice I needed, uh, that sense of purpose I needed, you know. There are better sommeliers than me out there, they're better tasters, but how you interpret it and how I want to share the experience beyond wine. And my 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 experience is, is is just, you know, coming from there, you can actually build your own brand, build your own product and do it. Like I'm not in the race to finish what I've started. And to be honest, I don't think I would ever want to finish it because I look at my kids or I look at myself, the lineage we're talking about. But if the wine is taking me to where I've been. So for me, it's always about building. So my wine became a vehicle of trying to put that in taste and bottle. Uh, Obviously, I knew I could sell it. And the tasting part, I knew I had to sell it in the test kitchen. So... The flavor profile had to work with most of the dishes, yeah. So from onset, I wanted to make wine, which is drinkable with food in a way. Uh, So that's how the the brand came about. 
changing narratives and evolving a sense of purpose. That's not something we often give much credit to, but both travel along with us as we, migrants, immigrants, refugees, and expats, move about the diaspora. Too often, we're simply looking for that greener grass, trying to reach that next height, the promised land. And it's hard. Not only do we forget to stop to smell the roses, who's got time to relax? Share the simple pleasure of, say, an ice cream cone, recalling the innocence of a child. Well, maybe a few of us still do, but the theory seems to remain. Work hard, slog hard, and hopefully the next generation will have the luxury to play. Yeah. Where were you when it mattered the most? Had to go through it all on my own. No idea the pain of an artist. Don't you dare tell me you see me grow. You expected to see me defeated. Given to your words of discouragement. I never knew what a plan B is. I went for it because I wanted it. So if you want to test a theory, you start there, then you move into a different system. That's Tapiwa, scientist and former academic turned indigenous ice cream maker. He's a gourmand, really. Tapiwa knows how to play with food, people, language, and place. And boy, is he good at it. He's got a gift. So, uh, my name is Tapiwa Guja, and I used to be Delray Tapiwa Guja. I mean, legally, I still am. But that name, Delray, just came from someone's decision. It didn't really connect me to my people. And because at home, everyone calls me Tapiwa. And Tapiwa plays with all sorts of indigenous African ingredients, forming the basis for his ice cream brand, Toppy Toppy. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, part of his concerted effort to be like, no, this is my identity. And I think being in a Stellenbosch context actually is what drove me to specifically working with African food. Huh. and African ingredients. Ironically, right, you would think that's where I would go to be sort of assimilated into the system, but yeah. that's actually how I came out of the system, a whole different person. So tapioca means um, we've been given, uh, parentheses, kind of a gift sometimes. Yeah. Um, and tapi-tapi uh, means yum-yum for specifically sweet flavors. Huh. Right? That's the best way to explain it. It's like, it's an onomatopoeia, yeah. And so when I started to come up with a name, it just made sense. Like, that's when I was really, like, deep into my tapioness. And also, I wanted a name that reflected the message. I like the idea that there's an opportunity through this food to reconnect with oneself, culture, community. So when you were putting mm. all this together and thinking, here's the concept... And these are the flavor profiles. Mm. And this is the consciousness behind it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, definitely. So sometimes even my flavor names, I don't give them English names. Right? And people then have to ask, what is this? And I'm like, oh, is this is blah, blah, blah. Oh, you mean this? I'm like, no, I mean this. <laughs> you know. So if I say something is Maputi, they're like, what's Maputi? I'm like, oh, it's like maize has been popped. Oh, you mean popped maize then? I'm like, no, Maputi. <laughs> you know, I make that insistence. Not to be difficult, but to encourage this um, um, acknowledgement and acceptance of the fact that these are all equally important things that it doesn't always have to be the African sage or the African wild rosemary or the African, you know, it just is what it is, you know. Okay, let me just tell you how yum yum this all is. 
Simply chatting with Cordialis about Toppy Toppy flavors and ingredients took her way back, all the way back to Harare and her childhood. So um, my favorite flavor has to be just a plain vanilla. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Vanilla? And there I was, trying to score an invite to dinner at her house. Spice it up a little bit, though. I will add some fruit to my ice cream, just because it it adds a little color, and it also makes the ice cream that much better. But to me, ice cream, okay, was something that we had as a treat. And it wasn't something that we had regularly, I would say probably once, once or twice a month. We had an ice cream man that came on his bicycle and he would ring his little bell. And if there was an adult or maybe my grandfather was visiting, then he would give us a little bit of money to go buy ice cream from the ice cream man. But it was definitely not something that my parents kept in the house and we had on a regular basis. Mm, Okay, so that sounds like, you know, sort of big city ice cream story. I'm going to try one more time. What about something as unusual as a mawuyu? Oh, mawuyu. Mawuyu was something that we we had when somebody, I I lived in the city, and when we went to the Musika, which is the open-air market, it was Mbari Musika, um, somebody would buy it. Or if somebody was coming from a place where mawuyu were available, Mm. So could you imagine that flavor transformed into an ice cream as a kind of, you know, new world innovation? Would that appeal to you just off the top of your head? I love um, uh, uh, mawuyu. And when I hear about it as a flavor, I can taste it in my mouth because I can see that and how it, it the creaminess of the milk and the cream would blend together with the um, barbub and the mawuyu. So I, I can see that as a flavor, and I'm excited to actually one day get to try that particular flavor. But I also know that young kids now are mixing mawuyu and with water and milk and forming their own little popsicles. And so I I definitely can see that as a flavor in an ice cream. Mm. So, you know, this is what I really love about what Tapiwa is doing with Tapi Tapi. What he's doing and envisioning with his innovations and flavors is extraordinary. And what is so um, compelling to me is he came at this much like you've done from the science background, went home to his ancestral home after an unfortunate experience uh, with the family and really in this sort of, you know, fairy tale way, lounging in his grandmother's garden, thinking, feeling, smelling the smells and the aromas and the experiences from his childhood. He looked around and he said, OK, wait a second, actually. Why don't I just go back to Cape Town, blend some of these indigenous flavors, use that science background and make some ice creams. I was in a restaurant in Salt River, as a Melbourne restaurant, and I go there maybe once a month or so. And they had some of the Zimbabwean snacks for sale on the counter in the in the in the business, in the place. So they had like cereal from Zim, uh, little maize snacks, peanut butter, um, tea, all these like really personal childhood flavors. Then I was like, hang on, I wonder if I can put that into ice cream. So I just bought like five of them. I was like, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. And I took it home, literally the same day, made the custards, infused it. Next day I was like, this is amazing. This is it. Right. Because suddenly ice cream 
all along ice cream has been a delicious treat, but now it was something more, right? Something that was putting me in touch with my family, uh, with my ancestry, my childhood, and like it's a very nostalgic experience now versus just a delicious little thing, you know? And I was like, yeah, I found it. And at the same time, my identity thing was also changing. Um, and so at that point, now it suddenly made sense. You know, this conflict with who I am, or not conflict, but resting on the idea of who I am and the kind of work I'm doing in the world, balancing out that idea of who I am, was now making a lot more sense, you know. Versus the scientific angle, it was now at a point where it was now more of a job than the passion it used to be. And I was like, yeah, no, I think this is the next chapter. Because I've never been committed to science for life. That's never going to be me. I don't do... I'm not a specialist. As much as I did a PhD. And then as more... As, as I'm digesting it more and more, I'm realizing the actual thing that I have an issue with is... I feel the self-esteem of the continent is terrible. For a whole bunch of different reasons. And I feel food is a good intervention to help us... Uh, value ourselves better and improve our own idea of self and the respect we have for each other, for ourselves and each other. Yeah. And so for now, that's the that's the crusade. I'm gonna go with my favorites first. So matamba, which is a fruit from Southern Africa. Uh, matowe is another fruit, and what's interesting about matowe is quite uh, mucilaginous, so it's like okra. And maybe even worse than okra. It produces a lot of slime. It's got a nice flavor, but what's amazing is when you freeze the ice cream, it's the smoothest ice cream I've ever had. Because the slime stops any ice crystal formation. Like even like this oh is amazing. But you have to eat it really quickly because otherwise it goes bloopy again. Right. So if you don't like that particular texture, you gotta chow it down. Um, Maputi, which is the maize, uh, fire roasted peanuts. So we do like a lot of fire cooking back home. So a lot of the flavors are quite smoky. Um, pumpkin and peanut butter, like roasted pumpkin and peanut butter puree. That's also called nopi. Um, blackjack, which is tine. That's a leafy green. Baked clay. Um, so at the moment, I'm really excited about these sort of... Uh, for the most part, I try to make it using things that have health benefits and I tell people the health benefits. Right? But I'm, at the moment, I'm really focused on foods that work in a sort of reproductive, female reproductive context. Right? So clay, for instance, people eat it when they're pregnant because of the iron deficiencies and they crave an iron so they subs- uh, subsidize their diet with clay. My goodness, uh, that, that one that one blows me away. I can see the mawuyu ice cream. I can certainly see that. I can see the okra and the hibiscus, but the blackjack that that's very interesting. Sounds yeah. delicious. Yes, <laughs> try it. Yes, definitely. Okay, I'm just such a surprise. Speaking of color and healthy, can you imagine blackjack ice cream? Now, who would have thought of that ever? Bring that ice cream. And there it was. I scored the dinner invite. 
and I even had the dietitian singing the praises of ice cream. But what about the wine? I never feel guilty about my food choices. No. <laughs> <laughs> There's no time for that. Um, I, I think that food is something that is supposed to be enjoyed and celebrated. And to me, something like ice cream is a celebration food. It's yeah. not something that I eat on a regular basis. And so there's no shame and there's no guilt in eating it. It's okay to enjoy it as part of your regular diet. Did you say the same about wine? See, I could, I could kind of say the same about wine, especially red wine. Okay, first of all, Yolanda, we are having ice cream and wine when you come over. <laughs> on the table. You know, I think people have this view of healthy eating as an all or nothing. But no, all foods can fit as part of a healthy diet. You can have wine, wine with your meal. You can have um, ice cream when you want some ice cream. It's all about making sure that the overall structure of your diet is balanced. But what I can tell you is that when we look at grapes, we know that red grapes especially have that special color and they give us reversitrol and which is a very powerful plant chemical or phytonutrient that has the ability to protect the heart and keep your blood from sticking together, thereby reducing the risk of strokes. The diversity that comes with our African diets. The more diverse your diet is, the healthier that it is. So there's nothing wrong with having treats and foods that we love because they play a role in our lives and they are delicious. I like delicious food. Um, but it's all about the overall diet that matters. Yeah, for me, that really says something that also must be taken uh, to heart in terms of the health and wellness, that when we, again, have our, our, our indigeneity acknowledged and welcomed in this way through the palate on the tongue, which then creates sensory memory, which then informs the DNA, I'm really just on a bit of a riff around how we find ourselves leaving home, but bringing home along with us wherever we go. And and what I, I aside from uh, Tanache's wine tasting really good, it's a world class wine, and he's been awarded for it. Um, it you know he felt branding it Kamusha. The, the 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 label in and of itself has an image of his grandfather's crawl. It's really a statement and a reflection on his ancestral landscape. Yeah, exactly. So it was quite interesting, like when I sent out the label, mostly people didn't, especially in the African community, it's like, oh, you can actually put a label like that on the bottle and it's acceptable. It's like, yeah. And for them, there was a connection. Oh, you know, the conversation started, oh, you've taken me back home. You know, I remember here, I remember here. And I want that Kumusha home, I want that. So it was almost captivating and it was telling a story before someone was even curious about drinking the wine. So for me, the challenge was, like you said, I had to get the wine taste, as it was saying, you know. I just didn't want to put a... And that's one thing I, I feel some black-owned brands are struggling because, you know, they're putting the story there, but it's not tasting the same. It's not tasting the price. It's not tasting the, the identity. Whereas you, you can get a wine this established, you taste the story, you taste the identity. Well, absolutely. Um, as it's interesting to me that Tapiwa, Tinashe, and myself all go back to that Kumosha. 
because to me that is the roots that is where we come from that is where we start from and even though we're in the diaspora the one thing that i have are those roots the one thing that brings me closest to my homeland is food in my house that is how i remind my kids and myself where i come from those deep roots and i think it's very important that no matter where in the world you are you remain you remember those roots you remember where you come from because that defines you at the very granular level so we we take that back and we bring ourselves back there because it is our foundation and no matter what that is where we'll always go back because you go back to what is comfortable what you know and for me that is very powerful and extremely empowering that regardless of where you go in the world you have a home you have a story and you own that narrative and for so many zimbabweans and indeed africans our narrative starts at a place like komosha So a complete return in story, flavors, expectations and innovation made in Zimbabwe carried through its diaspora, through its people, their memories and from the land. You take something that mundane and everyday and you put it in a different place and you open up someone's range, right? Like that that's amazing. So it, it's it's about reinvigorating that excitement around your own things you know and remembering that although I, these are very normal things are very typical flavors they can still be fun and exciting and new every single time now i have to say it's it's been one of the most fulfilling part of me that whenever i get a message or i get a post someone says yo i've got a bottle of mushai been been drinking it goes beyond the wine but what made them trying to learn the story trying to drink this wine is that's what's all wine about i think wine is about conversations and memory and, and you know reminding each other and, and that feel good feel good factor and there was nobody better positioned for that than tanache who as i mentioned earlier has added a new title to his burgeoning wine empire head of communications for the first ever Zimbabwe Sommelier Association. Now that's an ancestral return of note and a great cause to celebrate. Yeah, I think it's it's you know it's, it's all of us have given us a, a reflection, you know, uh, nothing is happening in, in restaurants at the moment, so we've got this uh, lots of sommeliers almost like sitting ducks at the moment, uh, you know, uh, and who knows when the restaurants are going to open. Some have closed permanently, so some guys might lose their have lost their jobs already. So I think it's the right time to to put heads together, uh, you know, come up with ideas of ways to sustain the the, the profession post the, the pandemic. So I think it's just a good platform to to really reflect and and you know work out solutions going forward. I think it's really quite innovative. It's sort of, you know, slow growing. It's legacy industry. I mean, this is long legs for, you know, small grapes and vines. Yeah. 
So one would never expect that a pandemic would give an opportunity for a non-wine producing nation to create mm. a sommelier association. What exactly is it that a sommelier does? Oh, sommelier, well, by definition, is someone is a wine waiter uh, working in the restaurant floor, responsible for organizing wine lists, uh, responsible for you know general upkeep of wine service standards in the restaurant. And depending on the level of qualification where you are, you know, I ran a beverage program for the best restaurant in Africa for a while, and. You know, some guys are just there to, to service uh, customers in the restaurant. But I think the profession has evolved uh, to encompass quite a lot of things, you know, business side, service side, production and procurement. Well, I think sommelier, the best of the kind are the ones who recognize that at the end of the day, it's not about you. You know, it's, it's about the, the customer, the guest. You have to get an understanding of their taste, of their likes. So if you can't really discern that, then you're not really good at your job. So I think back in the days, it was about me, the sommelier, what I like, what I enjoy, imposing on you. Whereas I feel nowadays, it's just listening to the guests and if you were to bring something different is, is, is the way you interact, the way you relate and the way you recommend and your, your level of understanding and descending it without really, you know, forcing it someone's throat in a way. So I think it, it goes down to, to personality and, and level of understanding, I suppose, more than the qualifications. You can be the most qualified, but, you know, at the end of the day, it's a service industry. You're the head of communications now for this association. And a visitor to the continent may be surprised to find a sommelier association from Zimbabwe. So what makes it relevant? Why is there a need for a Zimbabwe association? I'm building stuff for my daughter. Maybe when they get there, like, oh, my dad tried this, but he couldn't finish it. But I think he went wrong that way. But there's a reference, there's, there's somewhere she can start, there's somewhere they can start, and I feel I didn't have that. And my mission is, you know, it's so, it's so taxing, it's so, uh, it takes effort and, and understanding that, you know, I'm a sommelier, now people see me posting stuff and being, but for me, in my mindset is I'm trying to document each and everything I'm doing so that it makes sense in the future. You know, 10, ten years down the line when Musha is selling a million bottles. People have to know that I started with 1,500 bottles. Yeah. And it's a feeling I have, and it's I've grown from 1,500, 2,000, 4,000, next year even more. Yeah, sometimes it's humbling, but sometimes it's also pushing. And for me, it's like when I look at my industry, and that's what I call my community, I've taken this far to come up to this position where I am, where maybe I can have a bit of influence and guide the other guys. That sounds fantastic. Do you plan to go back to Zimbabwe with the association to offer the same sorts of certifications, judging, uh, education, all of yeah. that range? Yeah, yeah, so it's just part of that, that education. My wine is now available in Zimbabwe, so I'll be spending much time there. Um, and yeah, yeah, there's, there's, I think, in the midst of 
everything there's still opportunities uh, like you know my wine is called home it's not for a reason I call it home because I think the greatest impact I'll make is when I'm when I'm home and brother, you're right, you're So there again, like with a collaborative community of bees brought together for the common cause to further the lineage of the queen, to feed her brood, and to secure food and land for the future. It all comes back to story, ancestry. A sense of home, especially in times like these of economic, political, and food insecurity. We should be able to do just fine with the things that already are here, right? But I think one of the biggest challenges for me, I think, is the people, the palace that are driving industry and the food industry and agriculture, they're not African palates, so they're going to drive for things that are familiar to them, you know. So as long as that's not changing or it doesn't improve, the reality is the money will always go to those sensibilities, yeah. But I definitely agree. I think we should be using the things that are from here. And so we finish this episode as we began, looking toward a positive African future for all. And as such, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Creating Better Futures, a Zimbabwean-founded, volunteer-based charity who's made it their mission to feed and support Zimbabwe's vulnerable children during this uncertain time. So please follow the links on our Instagram page at Be There Do That for more info. You can use our PayPal account details here on the website page for this episode to donate as little or as much as you can to help support creating better futures. Thank you so much in advance. Thanks for listening to Be There, Do That, the podcast featuring everyday stories about food, race, and social impact in Africa. I'm Yolanda Busby. You can find us at Be There, Do That on Instagram and on all of your favorite pod feeds. So share and keep enjoying. Thanks again. This podcast is brought to you by Lita Flora African Botanicals and Sourcing. What can we find for you? With sound design by Melanie Robertson at Origin Audio in Cape Town. This episode has been sponsored by Impact Amplifier. Supporters of African dreamers, innovators, risk takers, and humanists, building the world that we want to live in. Mm -hmm.